you could turn in your Bibles this morning with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. This is our third and final sermon on the book of Joel. And just by way of a quick review, we've talked about really two key events here in the book of Joel. Chapter 1 talked about this locust plague that swept through the nation at this time. Uh, basically, these locusts ate all of the food. There was nothing left for the people to eat. Uh, there was nothing left for the people to sacrifice. It was really a terrible time in the people of Israel's history. Uh, I don't think we can truly understand uh, just to the extent that a locust plague would have had on a society in which everything revolves around a harvest. Uh, this was really severe, and we applied chapter one to our own day by asking the question, how do you respond to tragedy? If I could put it this way, when the locust plagues of your own life come, how, how do you respond? For Joel, the response is pretty straightforward. He says, call out to the Lord. When tragedy befalls you, cry out to God. He, he can help. He alone can deliver. And then two weeks ago now, we looked at chapter 2, which describes this future day of the Lord, a day that is categorized or rather characterized by judgment at the hand of God. And if we're just casually reading through Joel in our devotions, we're going to read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and think, these two things seem pretty unrelated, right? We went from a locust plague to talking about a day of judgment, and yet Joel masterfully links these two together by referring to the day of the Lord in terms that these people are all too familiar with. He describes the day of the Lord as if it were a locust plague. And so as you're reading through chapter two, you're seeing a lot of similarities between what these people just lived, and how the day of the Lord that is to come is being described like that, and the severity of this day is not lost on these people because they've lived it. They know what a locust play can do to their economy, to their lives, and for the day of the Lord to do that to an even greater extent should strike fear into their hearts. Uh, this is masterful teaching. I said this a couple weeks ago on the part of Joel, and Jesus actually uses a similar tactic of using current events uh, to illustrate a larger point. So if you remember with me, Jesus actually uh, refers to this tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. Now, an event like that definitely would have made our local news if some building collapsed and 18 people died, maybe national news. Uh, I imagine that this event was circulating at the time of Israel, and, and people are asking, did this tower fall uh, as some sort of punishment for these people's sins? Was this the just recompense for their actions? Were they somehow worse than other people in Jerusalem at this time, that these 18 people died? And, and Jesus just goes straight to the point and says, listen, unless you repent, you too will perish. And he's just illustrating a larger point here from a current event that these people totally would have understood, a tower falling and killing people. And Jesus says, you need to repent too. Interestingly enough, 
the impending day of the Lord in chapter 2 is also grounds for repentance. This is what God is after in his people. Knowing the day of the Lord is coming, he urges them to repent. And we came across this beautiful text of scripture in chapter 2 where we read, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And at the end of chapter 2, we see that the people do repent, and their land experiences a complete restoration. The early rains come. The land is restored. There's a harvest. There's food and plenty again. When the people repent, God restores their land. It's a time of rejoicing and celebration for the people of Israel as they reflect on the provision of their sovereign God and delivering them from what was once an awful circumstance in this locust plague. And it's in chapter two that the intricacies of this book really start to come together because just as we have observed the parallels between the locust plague and the day of the Lord, in chapter 2 into chapter 3, we're going to notice a parallel between a present restoration of the land, one which I just described when the rains come and the food grows back, and a future restoration of the land. The description of which begins in verse 28. We're in Joel chapter 2. Look with me, if you will, at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. One of the most obvious markers of this future restoration is marked by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice something with me that a commentator drew to my attention. Look at verse 23. This is right in the middle of the description of the restoration of the land of Israel in their present day. And we read, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured out for you abundant rain. And then jump down to verse 28. We read that in this future restoration, what is poured out is not rain, but it's the spirit. Again, in verse 9, it's reiterated, even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, And I think the wordplay helps strengthen the parallels between these two events. There's a pouring out first of rain, and in the future, there's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit. And Joel is very careful to delineate who it is that receives the Spirit. Generally, he says it's all flesh there in verse 28. But then he describes further that those who will receive the Spirit are sons and daughters, old men, young men, Male and female, all will receive this spirit. And from our New Testament perspective, that doesn't seem too strange to us, right? We know that at the moment of conversion, the spirit indwells you. 
gender, age, social status, doesn't matter. You get saved, the spirit indwells you. However, from an Old Testament perspective, this would have seemed pretty astounding, to be honest. Because the work of the spirit, we might call it exclusive in the Old Testament. Uh, we might say that it is actually temporary at times. Think about King Saul. Uh, on the day that he is anointed king of Israel, it's said of Saul that the spirit comes upon him. And actually one of the things that Saul does that very day is he prophesies. He's numbered with the prophets, and yet just six short chapters later, Saul, after sinning, is described as the spirit leaves him. And that same spirit goes and dwells in David instead. Uh, another example in the Old Testament about the spirit's intermittent work is in the person of Samson. Three times we have described for us that the spirit of God rushes upon Samson and, and equips him to do these really miraculous things, included in which are uh, killing a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, uh, killing a lion with his bare hands. But again, even in these isolated instances, it seems that the Spirit's work is just kind of contained to those three times in which he is described as rushing upon Samson. And yet here, Joel is careful to say that it's not just the Saul's and David's and Samson's of the world that are going to get the Spirit of God. It's everybody. He is going to be poured out on all people, and the result isn't going to be feats of strength and prophesying. It's going to, excuse me, feats of strength, yeah, and prophesying like Saul. It's going to be dreaming dreams, visions, this prophecy in verse 28. It's exciting stuff for sure. I mean, imagine the original audience of this would have been like, whoa, this is sweet. We're all going to get the Spirit? And yet it's not until we see the fulfillment of this prophecy that we realize just how exciting this event is that Joel is describing. And hopefully you've made the connection by now that we read the fulfillment of this prophecy in our scripture reading. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 2, if you will. This story that we read actually technically begins back in the last chapter of Luke. You don't have to turn there. I'll just describe it for you. Jesus is giving his final remarks to his disciples before he ascends up into heaven. And he gives them a couple of instructions, one of which is, hey, <laughs> preach forgiveness of sins that is made possible by my name. We call that that great commission. It's probably most well articulated in Matthew. But Jesus says the same thing in Luke. And then he gives him one final instruction. And he says, actually, you guys stay here in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's where Luke ends. And so the book of Acts picks up with these people, these disciples, still obeying Jesus' instructions. They're not just kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs, though, like, okay, Jesus said power is going to come. Uh, we'll just wait here till it does. No, Acts actually describes in chapter 1 that they pick a new disciple after Judas dies. They find another guy to replace him as the 12th. Uh, it's said that 120 of them are gathered together. Uh, let me make sure I get this right. Uh, to devote themselves to prayer. 
Included in this group are the 11 original disciples, Jesus' mother and his brothers, uh, some other women who are followers of Jesus. And chapter 2 then begins with the statement that all of these people are gathered together in one place. All of the sudden, the Holy Spirit is seen in a physical manifestation of a, what's called a tongue of fire, perhaps a flame of fire coming to rest on all of these people. And they are filled with the Spirit, and they begin to speak in tongues, men and women. Sound familiar? Joel's talking about this. And these newly equipped people start speaking in tongues, not nonsense like we have on display for us, unfortunately, today, but they are declaring the mighty works of God to those who are present, these Jews that have gathered from all parts of the known world with all of their own languages. These people are declaring the mighty works of God in their native tongue to them. And the response is pretty mixed. A lot of them are amazed. Wow, this is unbelievable. A few of them mock and say, you guys must be drunk. Like, all of you speaking in these tongues, come on, this doesn't happen. But Peter, that very same Peter who we described last week as having this boldness, stands up and says, no, 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 no. You guys have got this all wrong. They are not drunk. They are filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, this is a direct fulfillment of what the prophet Joel spoke about all those years ago. And it is in this context that he then quotes Joel chapter 2 in verse 17. And we just read it. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And after quoting the prophet Joel, Peter launches into a bold declaration of the gospel in verses 22 to 24. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter goes on to quote uh, Psalm 16 here in verses 25, uh, I believe down to 31. And we pick up Peter's commentary in verse 32, and Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter is saying, you guys are seeing the direct result of this indwelling Holy Spirit here today. And again, he quotes another Old Testament passage of Scripture, this time Psalm Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35. And then we come to verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Do you remember that Joel says that this Holy Spirit is going to be for everyone. Whereas in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, as I just described, was kind of contained to unique individuals, the Samsons and Saul's and David's of the world. Peter here is reiterating what the prophet Joel says. And listen, this promise, verse 39, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And in verses 40 and 41, we have the response of the people. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the description of the start of the church. And it finds its origin in a prophecy hidden away in the book of Joel. And here's the point that I really want to make today. It's that Joel's prophecy about the Holy Spirit coming to indwell on everyone isn't some vague or nebulous description about some far-off event that has no real uh, fulfillment or timetable. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's out there. No, the New Testament is very careful to say what Joel is describing here is a day in which the Holy Spirit equips a group of men and women to testify to the mighty works of God, to give evidence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and giving them power to speak in tongues and ultimately to prepare the soil for these Jews who 50 days prior had put Jesus on a cross. Peter says a couple of times, you crucified Jesus. And this work of the Holy Spirit prepares the soil of their hearts to hear the good news of this same Jesus whom they killed and to respond and to find forgiveness of their sins. Isn't God's word awesome? 
the interconnectedness of the scriptures is amazing that Joel would be talking about this very event. Now, we do have one final thing to address from the prophecy here in chapter 2. If you've been paying close attention, you've noticed that we've effectively ignored half this prophecy, right? There's that whole bit, if you're still in Acts 2, in verse 19 to 21, that just describes some crazy things going on. Uh, These wonders described as blood, fire, smoke, sun being turned to darkness, moon being turned to blood, and we're not seeing any of those things take place here in Acts chapter 2. In fact, the only time that we see events like that happening take place when? In the end times. I mean, look at how closely this mirrors Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And I don't think any of us doubt that what is described here in Revelation will, in fact, take place. What's confusing is how Joel and subsequently Peter can talk about something that happens in the early church and something that is thousands of years ahead in the future in the same paragraph, as if they're stacked on top of each other. Uh, That could be potentially confusing for us, but I think the simplest explanation is one we've already considered in this study, and it kind of goes along with this idea that the Bible is not bound by our perception of time. We had a a great case study on display for us with the day of the Lord. In Joel chapter 2, Joel gives, uh, gives this like, Announcement, he says, sound the alarm, the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And we just had to remember that near from the Bible's perspective is not near from our perspective, because when we get to the New Testament, the apostles are still saying, the day of the Lord is coming. And in Revelation, we finally get clarity that the day of the Lord is associated with the second coming of Christ, that day of judgment. And so us, with the advantage of the full revelation of Scripture, are like, okay. We understand what you mean here. In a similar way, it seems that when talking about future events, the prophets not only saw them as near, but as all kind of lumped together into one just future event. There was nothing that distinguished uh, the day of the Lord and these events described in Acts chapter 2 with the sending of the Holy Spirit and and his indwelling of people. Uh, They don't always insert time indicators, and they maybe didn't even understand themselves that uh, with what is the same paragraph here in Joel 2 and Acts 2 could have been really spread over the course of a very, very, very long time. And so Peter is just quoting this prophecy in its entirety. We have no reason to believe that Peter doesn't believe himself that these events of the uh, sun going dark and the moon turning to blood aren't also right on the horizon in his own life. He just knows that he is closer to the day of the Lord than Joel was. And we know we're closer to the day of the Lord than Peter was. It's very true that it's much nearer for us than it was for Joel. Uh, We've talked about this already, but can I remind you that Peter describes this coming day of the Lord, this delay rather, 
uh, he, he speaks about people who in the end times, they're kind of going to be like looking at their watch and like, wasn't the day the Lord supposed to happen? And, and it hasn't? Like, scratching their heads thinking, did, did God forget? What's going on here? We've been waiting for this for a long time, and nothing seems to be happening. Well, Peter says this in response to that mindset. In 2 Peter 3, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter is saying, listen, do not interpret God's delay here as him being slow or forgetful. What is actually taking place is that this is evidence of God's patience. Because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So he is, I'll use the word delay, delaying his return so that more people have a chance to repent. And nestled right in the midst of these terrifying events is one little phrase that I actually want us to return back to Joel to, to see, although Peter does quote it in Acts. Turn back to Joel chapter 2. We're looking at verses 30 to 32 in the midst of this terrible description of uh, fire and smoke and blood, the sun being turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Nestled right in this text, we have an awesome little phrase that starts off verse 32. We read, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you've heard this verse before. We traditionally lump it in with our, what we like to call the Romans road, generally insinuating that the gospel's for everyone. It's not exclusive. It's not just for a select few people. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is certainly true. But in the context of what Joel is saying, I think it adds another depth or layer of importance to us. Joel, talking about the coming day of the Lord, this future judgment from God says, call out to him and be saved from what is to come. And is this not at the core or the essence of the gospel? Where there is a future judgment for our sins, except for those who call upon God and those who take refuge in Christ, they will be saved. They will be spared of this coming judgment. And here we have five little verses in this obscure little book of Joel that are just so rich that talk about the coming Holy Spirit that anticipate salvation of those who call upon the name of the Lord. I think it's awesome personally that this is just tucked away in here for us. Something that Peter quotes himself. Then we have all of chapter 3, which we are going to cover pretty quickly. I think I can pretty well explain it to you, or at least get the ball rolling from just the first couple of verses. Look at verse 1. 
we read, for behold, in those days and at that time, so we're still talking about future events here, presumably the days that were just being talked about in the previous chapter. So there's a future event coming. When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Joel is saying there is coming a future time of restoration for the people of Judah, for Jerusalem. And what does that look like? Verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and divided up my land. And excuse me, what we have being described here is God's judgment of the nations in defense of his people. Verses 5 and 6 describe some of these injustices that have taken place for us. We read, For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. What we have talking about here is the pillaging and plundering of the land and the hauling off of exiles into another country. God is saying, I will defend my people. I will restore them to what the nations have done against them. And and we see some of like Israel's traditional or historical enemies that are going to receive some of God's judgment. Let me just read off a list for you of who is mentioned here. Tyre and Sidon, Philistia. Later on in the chapter, we see reference to Egypt and Edom. But as this chapter progresses, we start to get the idea that maybe something even bigger is going on here. That there is a still future restoration that is going to take place. Place. Look down at verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And this very language is mirrored for us in Revelation 14, where we read, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle. And reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Look at verses 14 and 15 in Joel. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Again, we're seeing those, uh, I'll call them reference points Talking about end times events here, the sun and moon being darkened, and we have this huge gathering of people. Well, again, we see this in Revelation. There is this huge gathering of people. Revelation 16 describes there are these demonic spirits who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. This seems to be borrowing the same language as Joel talking about the battle of Armageddon that is to come. When all of these people have gathered to stand against God. These parallels to end times continue in verse 17, where we read, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. 
Interestingly enough, Revelation 21 talks about another city, also called Jerusalem. And here's the description of that city, that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Do you see the parallels here between what Joel is describing and Revelation? Verse 20 says, Judah shall be inhabited forever, Jerusalem to all generations. One final parallel for you. A couple of times in these last verses, verse 17 and verse 21, we have this phrase that appears. Look at the end of verse 21. The Lord dwells in Zion. Again, calling our minds to Revelation 21. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And these things are certainly fascinating, these parallels between what is being said here in Joel and what takes place in Revelation. But I don't want us to lose the forest from the trees here. That God has promised a restoration for Israel, for Judah and Jerusalem. This restoration the prophets talk about. There are various facets, various terms, if you will, of this restoration of Judah, of Israel. God coming to their defense, being the stronghold and refuge. But there's one that corresponds well to what we've considered already here in the book of Joel. And it's found in another little known New Testament prophet, or Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. Where we read, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There is coming a day, this text says, in which God will pour out his this spirit on the house of David, and they look on the one whom they have pierced. Who do you think that is? It's Christ. And they'll mourn for him, and they'll weep bitterly. Paul, in Romans 11, talks about this hardening that has taken place over the people of Israel. We can observe this today. It seems like there are very, very, very few Jews who actually, we would say, are Christ followers. And yet Paul, in Romans 11, says that there is coming a day in which all Israel will be saved. There is a future restoration for Israel, the greatest of which is that they will look upon Christ and find forgiveness. They'll repent of this one whom they have rejected for so long. They'll mourn for him and weep bitterly over him, and their hearts will be transformed. So as we conclude the book of Joel today, I kind of want to ask the question that some of you have asked me. What is Joel's place in the canon of Scripture? Right? Like, some of you have told me, I've never heard a sermon on the book of Joel before. To be honest, I don't think I've heard a sermon on the book of Joel before either. And now we've heard three. And even after this little series, I seriously doubt that the book of Joel 
has made its way into your top 10 favorite books in the Bible. It just kind of exists in that dark corner of the Old Testament that none of us really ever turn to. Even when we have nothing to read, eh, we'll go to the New Testament somewhere. So, so, so what is Joel doing here? What is its place in the scriptures? Uh, our view of the inspiration and the preservation of God's word forces us to believe that it has value. I mean, Timothy talks about all scripture being profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Where does Joel fit into this? How would we conclude that this book has been profitable? And in what ways? Well, here's just a brief flyover of the whole book. I think, firstly, the book of Joel teaches us how to respond to trials. This locust plague that we spent one week really looking at and the subsequent weeks just talking about was catastrophic for these people. I don't know that there's an event in the scriptures that quite mirrors this. And yet we're told in the book of Joel how to respond to trials, to hardship, to call out to God when tragedy strikes. How about secondly, Joel reveals God's character. In this book, we have described for us a God who will send a locust plague to get his people's attention. We have a God who describes himself as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting over disaster. We have a beautiful description of who God is in this book. We have a description of God coming to the defense and the aid of his people. God defends his own. He goes to bat for them, so to speak. Thirdly, the book of Joel advances the great story. I think you know what I mean by the great story. The story of Christ. Because contained in this little tiny book, we have the anticipation of a day in which the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all people. And that is fulfilled in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the start of the church, we have that awesome phrase, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel gives us a glimpse into the future and advances this great story, keeps the ball rolling so that when we come to the New Testament and see Christ, we'll have known he was coming because what these books have told us about him. So let me encourage you, please, Give the minor prophets a chance. I know there are some confusing things in there. I know that at times you're left scratching your head like, what in the world is going on? I've been overwhelmed myself studying this book. But these books have a purpose and a place in the scriptures. They have value for us today. These are very general things, but I think that it is worthy of our study and of our contemplation. And I just want to remind us that all of God's word has value and is profitable to us today. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're thankful for what you have revealed to us in your word. We're grateful for 
Um, it's preservation and the way that you have intricately linked all of these things together uh, from the old into the new, all anticipating the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we even think about the, uh, the restoration of the people of Israel, a day in which um, you will save them. Lord, we long for that day. For people who are blinded to who you are, to have those scales peeled off and to respond to Jesus and to find uh, repentance and forgiveness of their sins in him. Thank you for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.